Hello, you're listening to The Dollop. This is a bi-weekly podcast starring Dave Anthony. Each week, I read a story from American history to my friend. What's happening? Gareth Reynolds, who has no idea what the topic is about. Thank you. What is happening? God, do you want to look at a dude? I'll do one bottle. <laughs> People say this is funny? Not Gary Gara. Dave, okay. Someone or something is tickling people. Is it for fun? And this is not going to become the Tickling Podcast. Okay. You are Queen Fakie of Made Up Town. All hail Queen Shit of Liesville. A bunch of religious virgins go to mingle and do what? Pray. Hi, Gary. No. Nicely done, my friend. No. No. <laughs> Gary, uh, we just have to a pre-recorded. Podcast. Should we just pre-record what this podcast is? Because I think you're taking a little too much creative liberty with how you're just. Sorry, am I being too creative? It's just. I like that there's a freedom to this podcast. I'm talking about limiting that. Yeah, I think that's wrong. Yeah, right. I think you're a wrong person. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, I never told you. I was saying I wanted to tell you about this. What's that? I never told you the story about when I flew back from Sydney with you, because it's pretty funny. Okay. Because what happened was somebody somebody at one of the shows, people, some people were very nice and thought that I might like marijuana. So uh-huh. at some of the shows, some people gave me marijuana. Uh-huh. I don't know why they thought that. But somebody gave me- Because you like marijuana. Huh? Go ahead. So uh, this somebody was very nice, and they gave me some pot chocolate. You know, oh dude, you po- can't eat edibles. You don't know what it's. No, on the contrary, I think flying on an edible is a great decision because they knock me out. Like I told you, when we flew to Australia, I slept literally the whole flight except for maybe forty minutes, and on the way back, I probably slept for everything except for like an hour forty-five when I watched me myself and Irene. Now. The flight back, the we, we let we stayed out late the night before we left, and we we did stay out late, and we and we were gonna maybe see if we stayed up all night, and then at like three forty five, I was like, I'm going to bed. You were like, let's go to let's go to bed. So we got into bed together because we sleep together. <laughs> but but anyway, so I get up at we're leaving at like six a.m. and I see this pot chocolate, and yeah. I'm like, oh shit, yeah, I'm just gonna eat a piece of this, yeah. So I eat a piece of it. And uh-huh. then, as we remember when we were there, there was torrential downpours, the worst rain that Sydney's had in oh, right. decades. Right. So, as we're going to the airport, I'm thinking, oh, shit, is our flight going to be delayed? Because <laughs> my whole angle is like, this is just going to knock me out on the flight. Like, I'll just right. be on another planet by the time we get on the plane, I'll just pass yeah. out. But then our, we get there, and when we check in, the woman at Virgin, I don't know if you remember, she was like, you black so raw, right? Like, we were I both. I remember that. Yeah, because, we, because I looked fried. Yeah, but like we a both fucking, did. But I was but really starting to hum. <laughs> and so so we're, we're in there, whatever, and our flight's delayed three hours, which I'm like, shit, because I'm really starting to like yeah. feel this edible that I don't know where it came from. And then we, you and I went to get a bite to eat, yeah. and we sat down, and you looked at me, and you just go... Dude, your eyes are so red. I remember that. And you're a friend of mine. I should feel totally comfortable being like, Dave, <laughs> I ate pot chocolate this morning because I'm not a grown-up. And and I didn't expect a flight to be delayed. I'm tripping a little bit right now yeah. while we're in this 50s diner in the Sydney airport. Yeah. But instead, I was just like, tell him nothing. Don't tell him anything. That so explains why you're being so fucking weird. And I was like, I think if you remember, I was like, how's Heather? 
And yeah. you were like, what? I was yeah. like, how's your wife? And then it gets better. Then I go, because you say my eyes are fried, I go, I got to go to the bathroom. But I went to a pharmacy to get eye drops. But as I'm like tripping. I'm not your dad. I know. I, I just, I was so high that I just got in this paranoid state where I was like, I just didn't want to be ridiculed. Sure. So I was like, if I, if it was like Dave's going to make jokes, it's not going to be good. Yeah. So then I go and I buy eye drops. I put the eye drops in and then I'm like, where the fuck was that restaurant? <laughs> Because that airport is huge. And then I'm like wandering around like, where were we? And then I'm like, what if Dave is watching me right now going like, what is he doing? He's 15 feet away from where we're eating. And then and then remember oh, when we, we checked in, I, I, half my ticket was missing? Yeah. The important half? Yeah. And I'm like, am I going to be okay? And you were like, what is happening right now? God. It's because I was so fucking oh, gone. No. I was so oh. gone that I was like... No one can know. It all fucking makes sense. Yeah, now. you were. I've been meaning so to tell weird. you. That. Yeah, the whole time. I yeah. was like, What? Is and you were like, you were like, you're so tired. And I was like, real tired, man. As I was just like, just get on that plane. I was just like a convict, like leaving. Yeah, no, you're lucky you didn't tell me. I would have told the police. Uh, it was, it was police. that, it was that I thought you would be like, well, yeah. I mean, you probably want another one. Ooh, are the colors moving? And I'd be like, right now, I can't handle jokes. July 30th, 1881. <laughs> Scared me. I thought we were, okay. <laughs> Smedley Butler was born in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Smedley Butler. Smedley Butler. The oldest of three boys. His parents, Thomas and Maud Butler. Jesus. Yeah, good names, right? Really dealt a shorthand in the name game. Yeah. Uh, came from. Smedley uh, and Maud over here. It's us. Fucking dog shit. Dog shit. Dog shit's a terrible name. I listen, so is Smedley. Uh, they came from uh, local Quaker families. Both his father's and mother's families had been in the country since the 1600s. His father was a lawyer, a judge, and for 31 years a congressman, and the chair of the House Naval Affairs Committee. Okay. His maternal grandfather was a Republican congressman from 1887 to 1891. So he came from the fucking shit. He's yeah. from American, right. fucking awesome American. But Dave, I think you could be a little less upset with him. Smedley attended popular private schools in Philadelphia. He was the captain of the basketball team and quarterback of the I say, team. pass it over here, Buffy. <laughs> <laughs> then he dropped out of school and as 17 year, years old enlisted in the Marine Corps during the Spanish-American War. Okay. He had to lie about his age, and of course, he received a direct commission as a Marine Second Lieutenant. Was it just that easy that you were just like, 18? They were yeah, like, move they, along. Yeah, I think they, no, no yeah. one gave a shit. Yeah, okay. Yeah, come on in. All right. Well, your story checks out it's, right this way. It's weird. You look seven, but yeah. you say you're 18? <laughs> yep, 18 years yeah. old. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. After the war, in which he really didn't do dick, he was sent to the Philippines. There, he got loaded in his room one night and was relieved of command after what is... Described as an unspecified incident. Hmm. You can only imagine. Yeah. Get it? Yeah. yeah. Smashed in a room alone. Smashed, smashed. And an unspecified incident. Yeah. yeah. You're alone and you're drunk. It's naked or master. There's something. It's smashing shit up. Smashing right? naked. Smashing yeah. Up. Naked masturbating. masturbating smashing masturbating. Smasturbating. Masturbating. The Philippines is where Smedley saw his first action. He led Marines in taking a town from rebels and then rewarded himself. With an eagle, globe, and anchor tattoo that started at his throat and went all the way down to his waist. Oh, shit. An eagle, globe? Eagle, globe, and anchor. 
Eagle the classic. Oh, right. Okay. Right. It's a right. Classic. Yep. Nope. Marine tattoo. So they're not normally that size. No, you should get a little bit you can smaller. Go small. You can go small. Yep. Doesn't uh, need to be the size of a legal anchor. It does not. No. Uh, next, he went to fight in the Boxer Rebellion in China, where his bravery earned him a promotion to captain. After that, it was on to Central America, where he fought in U.S. wars like the Banana War that were simply to help U.S. corporations. This bummed him out. It was in Honduras that he got his nickname Old Gimlet Eye. Because he had gin tears? Oh, maybe he ate some pot uh, pot brownies. Oh, come on. We're in the show now. That was the meander. This was because of his feverish bloodshot eyes from an unnamed tropic fever that he had. Oh, Jesus. It gave him an enhanced penetrating and bellicose stare. Sorry. So he had a disease that gave him a weird stare and nobody cared? He got crazy red eye in the jungle and they just nicknamed old gimlet eye. You know what'll get rid of that? A nickname. (laughs) We just got to give people a heads up. Move over, curing disease. He came back to the U.S. and married Ethel Conway Peters. Then he was off again. This time to the Philippines. It didn't go well. Smedley had a nervous breakdown and came back to the U.S. for, for nine months to get it together. He managed a coal mine in West Virginia where he observed the brutal treatment of coal miners. Uh-huh. They didn't have it good, the coal miners. Let alone the canaries. Mm. They're the forgotten heroes in mm. all this. Girl. The canaries had it the worst. Girl, you, you keep you preaching. Think about the canary dollar. Mm. <laughs> Canallop. Canallop. Then he jumped back into the Marines the first chance he got. He was off to Nicaragua where he, he led a battle against rebels with a temperature of 104. Jesus. He's not good in the jungle. <laughs> Run over there. Throw that scent. Throw that. Throw that. Uh, eat the leaves. Oh, boy. I'm going to sit down. I am gassed. Why are your eyes so red? Oh, it's like they call me Gimlet. <laughs> then it was off to Panama where he was stationed and he brought his family. He eventually had three kids. Uh, Smedley was given a spy assignment. Ah. He was to go into Mexico and to develop a, an invasion plan. <laughs> okay. So to inva- a plan to invade Mexico. Yeah. All right. Something tells me it's going to involve the border. So he went into Mexico posing as a railroad official named Mr. Johnson. That's <laughs> yeah, so fed. Like, did he not think of it? But he had to think of it on the fly. Nothing. Nothing. Maybe he was just so tired of Smelly Butler that he was like, "I got to just go with something <laughs> common." Yeah, he really did not come up with a good, good name. Oh, right, the name uh, Johnson. They call uh, me Mister Mister Johnson. Damn. My first name is Mister. These tracks look in order. He mapped areas for invasion, Mexican weapon storage areas, and uh, the size and readiness of units. But it was all scrapped. Instead of invading all of Mexico, the U.S. decided to just invade Veracruz, where it learned weapons were headed. Smedley helped lead a force that held the city for six months. When it was over, he was given the Medal of Honor, which he then gave back because he said he didn't deserve it. And then they ordered him to take it, so he took it. Yeah, you're too honorable if you're returning the Medal of Honor. They're like, I'm the, you are getting a second one for what you've just done. Far too honorable. Double medal of honor. Oh, no, I don't want those. Give him four. Four medals of honor. You think you're too fucking honorable for these medals? Here comes six. <laughs> Jesus, no. Shove the medals down his throat. Pin him on his face. Pin him to him. In 1915, he was sent to Haiti, where he basically kicked the shit uh, out of Haitian rebels. He ended up taking all the forts held by them, the last one, by hand-to-hand combat that lasted for 20 minutes. For this, he received his second Medal of Honor. Okay, so he starts off as kind of a wet noodle, but now he's just the fucking badass. He's the craziest badass ever. 
He's just going into countries, just fucking shit up. Yeah, sick. The yeah, can't sick. S- can't see uh, 104 degree fever. Yeah, he's fucking busting into in Asian forts with his buddies. Yeah, hand to hand combat. Fuck the guns. Yeah, yeah. They're going through the wall. Please take a gun, Smetley. Uh, so he received his second Medal of Honor. I don't want it. And- <laughs> <laughs> his eighth medal of honor <laughs> his 35th medal of honor for two things at that point only one other uh guy had done that so now he was on uh fdr's radar okay he was on the fd radar fdr after the radar fdr uh fdr was now the assistant secretary of the navy we know, uh, what, he right, we we know, know what he did then. <laughs> had a good old time. <laughs> World Roll War- me over here! <laughs> World War I had started, and Smedley kept asking to go to the Western Front, but was always denied. He was considered to be very brave and brilliant, but completely unreliable. Okay. He was given the rank of Brigadier General and put in charge of a camp in France that sent troops out across Europe. The camp was a mess and very muddy. Smedley had his men go get duckboards from trenches that were no longer in use. So they would have something other than mud to sleep on. Mm. So that's pretty good. That's how you treat a war hero. <laughs> uh, go mudding. <laughs> Fuck out of here. Why don't you go to Camp Mud, bud? Yeah. <laughs> hey, You want to go west, huh? Uh, go live in mud. Hey, war hero, you like wet dirt? Yeah. Uh, because of this, he earned his second nickname, Old Duckboard. Very. That's a shitty nickname. Right on the nose. Yeah, they really nailed that one. Old duckboard. Old duckboard. Call him old non mud. Old. Old hate mud. Mud not. Old non mudder. For his exemplary service, he was awarded both the Army Distinguished Service Medal and Navy Distinguished Service Medal and the French Order of the Black Star. Okay. After the war, he became commanding general at base at base Quantico, Virginia. During a training exercise in Western Virginia in 1921, he was told by a local farmer that Stonewall Jackson's arm was buried nearby. To which Smedley replied, Bosh! I will take a squad of Marines and dig up that spot to prove you wrong! He did. And he found the arm buried in a box. Oh, God. He then replaced the wooden box with a metal one and reburied the arm. (laughs) (laughs) Awkward! (laughs) Oh, shit! That is an arm! So he was right. Well, the only thing and left to do is put it in a stronger box. Uh, yeah, let's put it nicer. <laughs> yeah, the guy was like, no, we don't need to put it in a metal box. It's fine. Leave it there. He's like, no, come on. The whole fun part was that it was in a wooden box. It's just going to be fast. This was just going to be a quick thing. In 1923, the newly elected mayor. By the way, why was his arm buried there? Just... Well, he probably got cut off during a war or yeah. a fight. And, so uh, I, and then they were just like, what do we do with this? So we're not going to carry it around, right? They're not going to be like, there's no. the arm. It's still super crazy to so, bury an arm. Well, either that or you just throw it in a ditch. So they just Leave buried it. it, I guess. And it's a famous arm, right? Oh, come on. It's not like a, some, some, you know, it's common like it's man's arm. arm. Yeah. yeah, it's not a schlub arm. It's a fucking quality <laughs> arm. <laughs> All right. All right. See, treat it with respect. It's, it's got to be funny that if like other arms show up. Give it its own funeral. arm casket. <laughs> Yeah. Other arms? Yeah, there's an just arm priest. Arms? Yeah, just an arm priest. <laughs> I'm gonna summon this. Yeah. 
1923, the newly elected mayor of Philadelphia, W. Freeland Kendrick, asked Smedley to leave the Marines to become director of public safety in charge of the city's police and fire departments. Oh, shit. Smedley passed because the city was so corrupt. Okay. Then President Calvin Coolidge asked him to do it, so Smedley agreed. It seems like his name should be, his nickname should be asked twice. Double ask Smedley. Yeah. (laughs) Smedley immediately ordered raids on more than 900 speakeasies in Philadelphia. Shit. Ordered the arrests of corrupt police officers. Oh, boy. And cut the roofs off their cars so they couldn't sleep on the job. Wow. What? (laughs) I mean, is there not? That's a little bit much. (laughs) That's a lot. That's a bit much. That's when someone's like, well, that's going to cost a lot of money, Smedley. Take it off. All righty. You know any arms around here that are buried? Uh, what? Arms. Let's get out of here. At one point, he said that he would promote the first officer to kill a bandit, and stated, "quote I don't believe the I don't believe there's a single bandit notch on a policeman's guns in this city. Go out and get some." And bandits are just criminals. Just, yeah, just go. Kill, just go kill a criminal. Go, yeah, go kill some people. Cool. All right. Yeah, that's what you do. That's why you don't want to double up on the Medal of Honor. Mm. He's Iron Man now. When Magistrate Edward Carney complained that Smedley only harassed the drinking establishments of the working class, Smedley responded by ordering raids on the Ritz-Carlton, the Bellevue Stratford, and other expensive hotel. He stripped the Bellevue of its dance license and began padlock proceedings against the Ritz-Carlton. Smedley also gave a weekly radio address in which he frequently swore, swore, and in which he frequently swore, causing many citizens to suggest his behavior was inappropriate. Now listen to me, you motherfuckers. Oh, I gotta go out there. All, All right. the cunts. All right. Every yes. one of you cocksuckers out there is looking <laughs> to get fucked with. We're gonna put it right up your ass. We're gonna come down there and take on, take the boot and shove it up your fucking ass. <laughs> Anyway, that's this week's report. Anyway, this was uh, brought to you by Winston's. Uh, Winston cigarettes, the smoothest smoke. Put it in your asshole. Put you it in your asshole fox. and suck it and barf it out of your fucking mouth. You shit, Fox. You piece of garbage. Someone <laughs> ought to piss on a piece of shit like you fuck nuts. Anyway, everything's safe. Anyway. Mayor Kendrick said to the press, quote, I had the guts to bring General... I had the guts to bring General Butler to Philadelphia, and I had the guts to fire him. <laughs> okay. Sort of a fucked up... Yeah. Hey, I was smart enough to, I was brave enough to bring a fucking asshole in here, and I can also fire that fucking asshole. This is perfect, Philly. I feel like you just countered out. I won. No, you. Just... I made a good decision, followed by another good decision. No, I feel like we're at like minus two. No, you. we're plus two. In December 1925, the mayor fired Smedley. But some of the public thought he was doing a good job and protested. Then the president got involved, and again pushed Smedley to stay another year. Wow. So he did. On January 1st, Smedley's leave from the Marines ended, and he was told to report back to San Diego. In a public speech, when leaving, he said, quote, I have been fighting in a battle where the head of the show was disloyal and everything was crooked. The mayor hasn't bossed me. He can fire me, but he can't bluff me. I've still got my self-respect. <laughs> Jesus. So wait, where he's in San Diego? No, but when he's leaving Philadelphia, he told oh, the press okay. that. That was his parting, those are his parting words. Yeah, like a slightly babyish. Right. Well, still. The mayor hasn't bossed me. <laughs> uh, and later he commented that cleaning up Philadelphia was worse than any battle he was ever in. Sounds about right. Smedley was appointed the commander of the Marine Expeditionary Force in China. How old is he now? 
Uh, so it's 1931. So he is he born in eight, 1881. So 50. Oh, okay. No, he right. can't be 50. So he's getting up there, right? Um, uh, Smedley, in an interview, told an anecdote about in 19. Sorry, in January 1931, Smedley, in an interview, told an anecdote about Italian Prime Minister Benito Mussolini. Oh boy, uh, Mussolini anecdotes some of the funniest. <laughs> I always said that. Uh, yeah, I have a funny story about me and Hitler, actually. Uh, you'll get a kick out of this one. Uh, Adolf was quite the prankster. Swan's a hoot. Swan's a hoot. The story told to him, was, the story was told to Smedley by an unarmed, uh, unnamed friend, unarmed. Unarmed. A man friend. without arms. <laughs> you know, they buried him right over there. Why? It was told to him by a friend that he wouldn't name, who had been taken by Mussolini for a high-speed car ride through the Italian countryside, in the course of which the director ran down a child and did not even bother to slow down. I'm sorry. So, wait. Classic Benito! Is that the whole story? Yeah, I mean... The story is that he was in the car when Mussolini killed the kid and he didn't care? Basically. Quote, my friend screamed as the child's body was crushed under the wheels of the machine. Mussolini put a hand on my friend's knee... And said, it was only one life. What is one life in the affairs of the state? Wow, that is... I mean, I know he's fucked up, but that's so fucked up for a fucked up guy. Just <laughs> hitting a kid and being like, come on, don't you worry about it. Hey, what's... He's like a meatball now. Don't worry. He's a fine. Look, he's a running back there. Look at him. He's a fine. Look at him. He'll roll it down to the hill. He's no. a cutie key. Oh, look at him laying all flat and there taking a nap on his... Anyway. <laughs> okay. I'm going to sleep like a baby. You like a football? Hey. 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 <laughs> In the car, like, what the fuck is going on right now? It's happening. I am Benito. Uh, okay. The you Ita- want the fresh shaved parmesan? <laughs> Benito. What the hell's happening? <laughs> Open this door. Get the fuck out. By the way, speeding in a car at that time was going, what, like 51? Yeah, probably. Woo! Yeah. The Italian government protested. Rome newspapers announced Smedley's accusations as insolent and ridiculous, and Mussolini issued a categorical denial. I have never taken an American on a road trip car around Italy. Neither have I run over a, you know, a child, a man, or a woman. Oh, my God. And the meatball. I never, ne- like, I like the lead. I never take an American on a car trip. What the fuck? Why are they taking an American on a car ride? I would take a woman. They are back to heat the driver. You're fucking disgusting. Go left, go right. Don't hit that kid. What's that? Is that a meatball? Huh? This is just Benito's eyes are just meatball filled. <laughs> Benito, you have a rare condition where you're going to see peripheral meatballs for maybe the rest of your life. Anytime you start, he's like, I would never do that. Don't worry about that. It's random meatballs over there. But anyway, like I was saying. Hey, uh, you are seeing the meatball? Look, uh, I don't want to freak anyone out, and I know that I have a condition, but uh, there's a lot of meatballs over there falling. <laughs> they're bouncing and they're falling. The Secretary of State issued a formal apology to Mussolini for, quote, discourteous and unwarranted utterances by a commission officer of this government on active duty. Smedley was placed under arrest and ordered court-martialed by President Hoover. Jesus Christ. But was eventually released without charge. Smedley then retired from active duty on October 1st, 1931. Yeah. 
Well, I get that. I mean, uh, if you've done all that and then you're just like, yeah, hey, real quick, uh, one time uh, Mussolini killed a kid when I was in the car with him. And then they're like, get, get the fuck out of here. Give us you back s- your medals. You are unhonorable. You are dishonorable. You are, uh, you are, there's no honor on you, sir. Who, who would talk about the King Meatball like that? <laughs> we should not be calling him that. What do you mean? Stop calling him King Meatball. That's what is King name? Meatball, we apologize. <laughs> Your humble, your your humble subjects before you. You are the king of clumped meat. Hey, uh, just so you know, I am no longer a king meatball. I am a king of spicy meatball. Okay. By the way, there's a bunch of meatballs falling right behind you. <laughs> hey, Hitler, look behind you there. This <laughs> it looks listen. like a meatball. I think it is a plan for world domination. It sounds great. But I, I got to warn you. They're going to be able to eat it in the concentration camps because there's a ton of meatballs falling right in there, right now. And I'm like, I'm freaking out. <laughs> now he's becoming like a Travolta dictator. It's totally, it's Travolta. It's just so weird. Yeah, it's like crazy. Like, there's a bunch of meatballs falling back in there. <laughs> what are you doing? There's so many of meatballs. Man, I don't know if your plan is going to work. <laughs> Let's go out on the Brooklyn Bridge. He was now a veteran. <laughs> Okay, sorry. I forgot where we were in reality. (laughs) Okay. Smedley's now a veteran. Uh, The Adjusted Compensation Act of 1924 gave a bonus to each World War I veteran. The one hiccup was that the bonus was not to be paid until 1945. Okay. A veteran named Walter Waters left post-war France in 1919 and tried to get different jobs like a mechanic, car salesman, farmhand, and baker's helper. When the Great Depression hit, he was left unemployed in Portland, and he became fixated on the idea of marching to Washington and demanding immediate payment of veterans' bonuses. Yeah. So he gathered people up. Uh And by the end of June 1932, 20,000 veterans were camped out in Washington, D.C. They were known as the Bonus Army. Yeah. I like the sound of them. Right? Yeah. We want a bonus! Yeah. Give us that money! Bonus! Army Chief of Staff General... I said General because that's what he came later. Army Chief of Staff Douglas MacArthur was convinced that the march was a communist conspiracy to undermine the government of the United States. Hey, anyone want a hit of this? (laughs) Pretty fucking paranoid. (laughs) Jesus. Look at them all out there asking for money we said we'd give them. Well, this has copy written all over it. Uh, and he thought that, quote, the movement was actually far deeper and more dangerous than an effort to secure funds from a nearly depleted federal treasury. Mm. <clears throat> oh, treasury's running out of money. Oh, look at the people starving who want a bonus. We don't have any. Sausalito News, June 10th, 1932. The gathering of the bonus army here is riveting public attention on the effects of unemployment. Yet, the visit is not stimulating congressional action on bonus legislation. Perfect. The sent, yeah, the sentiment at the Capitol is that the nation's finances do not permit the expenditure of hundreds of millions to veterans at this time. Many visitors could not actually qualify as a war serviceman, but have come for the excitement. Wow. That, that last part seems like total horseshit. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it seems like how you're trying to wrap up a story. A lot of peeps are just hanging. Yeah. A lot of guys are just here for the good time and barbecue. And the meatball. And the, no, 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 no. Sausalito News, June 24th, 1932. 
The refusal of the Bonus Army to evacuate their camps here is of concern in political circles. The two political parties want to avoid the subject as a campaign issue, yet the presence of the former soldiers in Washington during the electioneering season will ever be an unpleasant reminder to their friends back home. The shabby appearance of the men in makeshift camps on the streets of the Capitol accentuates our economic depression more than all claims of campaigners. There's a tragic side to this mobilization scene, something that arouses a nation's sympathy and more votes are swayed from the heart than by political conviction. Also, Mussolini dies trying to eat meatballs on balcony. It's so weird when you hear that shit, though, because it is just like it is. It's the same. It's just like the we're now like living in this the roided up version of that where it's like. It's there's no 1945, right? But it's not, still not, you have the disenfranchised veterans coming yeah, back. Totally fucked. We don't take care of it. Totally fucked. Too, and yeah. and politicians are like, hey, look over here, look at my keys. Well, yeah. you're like, yeah. What about all those people that you said don't raise taxes? Really? What about all the guys who you we can't pay for the guys that went to Listen, war? Listen, you can't put coal out of business right now. <laughs> That'd be foolish. Let the planet go to shit. Then we'll, uh, wait, what's my plan? Oh, I don't have one. Wait, what the fuck's my plan? Hey, look, meatballs! Oh my God, look at those meatballs! Smedley Butler, supporting the cause, found himself in front of the sea of 20,000 veterans. Old Gimlet Eye addressed the marchers amidst a storm of applause, describing the events at the event as, quote, the greatest demonstration of Americanism we've ever had. On July 28th, the U.S. Attorney General ordered the veterans removed from all government property. Washington police were sent in. But they were met with resistance, shots were fired, and two veterans were wounded and later died. President Herbert Hoover then ordered the Army to clear the veterans' campsite. That's going to be so weird. Yeah. To be like, get out of here, you fellow. Fucking guys that saved everybody. Awkward. Douglas MacArthur commanded the infantry and cavalry, supported by six tanks. Boy, I just, it's it, honestly like right now. It's what, it's what would happen right now. They'd be like, well, get the tanks out and kill them. It's very Tiananmen Square. Yeah. Uh, the bonus army marchers with their wives and children were driven out. So they brought their families too. <clears throat> and their shelters and belongings were all burned. 55 veterans were injured and 135 were arrested. Because of Hoover's response to the bonus army, Smedley Butler endorsed FDR for the 1932 election. Yeah. Within days of his inauguration, President Roosevelt called Congress into a special session and introduced 15 major pieces of legislation. One of those was the Emergency Banking Act of 1933. In the event of natural calamity, riot, insurrection, war, or other emergency conditions occurring in any state, whether caused by acts of nature or of man, the comptroller of the currency may designate any day a legal holiday for the National Banking Associations. So. The act expanded presidential authority during a banking crisis. The Great Depression was considered an emergency, and a four-day banking holiday was declared that shut down the banking system. Okay. Because of run on banks. Yeah. Then, using the Banking Act, on June 5th, 1933, the United States went off the gold standard. Congress enacted a joint resolution nullifying the right of creditors to demand payment in gold. Okay. <clears throat> Up until this point, if you had a dollar, you could take it to any government agency anytime you wanted and trade it in for gold. 
Okay. It's right. really fucking stupid. Well, what was the... I mean, I don't fully know what, like... How did the gold stand... What, what are, I mean, so we're off the gold standard, so now we're just on a... We just live on a dollar currency, right? I mean, yeah, we just live monetary. like the world's currency is attached to the dollar. So, yeah, the gold for now because uh, you can you can print more money and money's more flexible, whereas gold isn't. Right. So, that's, isn't that an argument? Isn't that? But it, it, in a way, that's a. It's been the Achilles' heel of the dollar well, standard. Maybe, but it has also stopped us from bottoming out at times completely. True. But we're gonna get there. Through the dollar, though. There were more, there were more, uh, there were far more, uh, like depressions and recessions. Right. Like bad times. Right. On the gold standard than after. It was like basically like the economy was cocaine. At this point, tremendous highs with tremendous lows. Yeah. I mean, there have been some bad times, but it's not as bad. And like the last one we had was all because of the banks. Yes. They just did it. Yeah. Like it doesn't, it had nothing to do with the gold fucking standard. Well, and what was good about that one, too, is that $860 billion went missing. Whatever. Yeah, either way. <clears throat> okay, so now banks were forbidden to pay out gold or export it, increasing the amount of gold held by the Federal Reserve, which would in turn increase its power to inflate the monetary supply. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce strongly opposed leaving the gold standard, and to top it off, Roosevelt's New Deal brought a stack of corporate regulations. But it went well. Newspaper account from the Eagle Rock Advisor. With the announcement that the United States is off the gold standard, the world has seen a revival in this country that reminds one of the, some of the boon days prior to 1929. As was to be expected, it was reflected first on the stock exchange and in the grain markets. Almost overnight, the wealth of the country, as represented in stock prices and bonds, has increased by many billions of dollars. Jesus. Yeah. FDR was like, uh-huh. <clears throat> yeah, what I tell you, girl. What's up, bitch? Vessels which have long been laid up for lack of cargo are being returned to service. No people in the world are better buyers than Americans. Since the United States went off the gold standard, much advantage has been equalized in favor of American products. Fuck Despite yeah. the doomsayers, the price of gold remained at its highest price in history at $33.76 per ounce. In December 1933, in a radio address... Samuel Dixon, a congressional representative from New York, told the American public that he had unearthed evidence of German infiltration and that the Nazi government was the most dangerous threat to American democracy that had ever existed. This led to the investigation of Nazi propaganda activities and investigation of certain other propaganda activities, special committee on un-American activities. Good. We're, we're going to call that the special committee. Uh, uh, an, an, ac- an acronym, an acronym, an acronym would long. be fun. <laughs> okay, the I N P A I C O P A S C U A A. The inspector. Sounds a little German to me. I knew it. When you put it like the acronym, it sounds like you're speaking German. So Congress had a new committee. Investigations. Uh, equally between U.S. Nazi sympathizers and a range of left-wing groups, uh, sorry, investigations, including communist trade unions and veteran organizations. So now they're looking at so now they're looking for Nazis, everything, right? And now they're looking but, for but commies it, and all across the board. In the veteran, but they're looking like through the veterans yeah, to see oh, like fuck yeah, the fucking dirty, <laughs> dirty vets. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Because of this activity with the bonus army, because of his activity with the bonus army, the committee came across 
General Smedley Butler's name as the leader of a veterans group possibly planning a coup. A coup on what? The American government? Well, back in the back in uh, July 1933, Smedley had been visited by a pair of gentlemen. Uh-huh. A Packard limousine came up into my yard and two men got out. This limousine was driven by a chauffeur. They came into the house and introduced themselves. One said his name was Bill Doyle, who was then the department commander of the American Legion in Massachusetts. The other said his name was Jerry Maguire. <laughs> Famous sports agent to Cuba Gooding Jr. <laughs> Have you seen my manifesto? Yeah. <laughs> Renee Zellweger's behind him like, hey, I hung it on the line for him. Uh, McGuire was a $100 a week bond salesman for Grayson Murphy and Company and former state legion commander of the Connecticut American Legion. They had come to urge Smedley to run for the Office of National Commander of the American Legion, an influential organization of veterans. There was a convention for the Legion coming up, and the men wanted Smedley to take part in it. They said they didn't like the Legion administration and the way it treated soldiers. Smedley declined the opportunity. They better have asked again, because that's when he's in. Twice! you got to go with the follow-up. That's why they call him two-time Smedley. Yeah. Well, would you maybe do it? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Yeah, yes. Yes, I will. (laughs) Jerry Maguire made several subsequent visits. During the next visit, the plan- show me the Smedley. <laughs> During the next visit, the plan had changed. Now uh, they wanted Smedley to bring three hundred men to the convention. He was to place the men in the audience, and at some point, they would begin to cheer and start a stampede and demand Smedley give a speech. I said, "Make a speech about what?" <laughs> oh, they said, "We have one. We will leave it here with." you to read over and you see if you can get those fellows to come oh boy the speech was written by john davis jp morgan jr's attorney it urged the convention to adopt the resolution that the u.s return to the gold standard mcguire tried to convince medley by saying they didn't want veterans to be paid with paper money they should be paid in gold nice chunks of gold look we need to get back on the gold standard we need to give gold to vets but how's my plan but <laughs> it's going so well. Gold to vets. No. You listening? Gold. Smedley Show said, me the gold. Smedley said if the vets wanted to go, they couldn't af- they couldn't even afford to go. Uh they to stay for 5 days and come back it would cost them $150. And McGuire said, "Well, we will pay that. We have friends. We'll get the money." Smedley said he did not believe it. The next time McGuire showed up, he presented a, a de- bank deposit book and showed 42,000 in deposits. In another meeting, it had 64,000 in it. Okay. McGuire said he represented the Committee for a Sound Dollar, whose primary purpose was to pressure the president to reinstate the gold standard. He implied the organization had the support of several political leaders and the financial backing of some of the country's most affluent individuals and successful corporations. They wanted the vets to get their bonuses, he said. Sure. What? Sure. It's just a bunch of corporate guys sure. and rich guys who want to take care of the vets yeah, like they hey, always do. Yeah, it's true. I they guess they've care. always yeah, they've always they've always had good hearts those corporations. Always. But Smedley had long lost faith in the American Legion. The Legion over time had turned into a strike-breaking outfit. Sure, the average vet thought the American Legion was patriotic 
but in truth, it was controlled by bankers, bankers who financed its beginning and basically pushed Turn into a strike-breaking outfit. He believed the lead. Leaders I have of the a Legion. great strike-breaking outfit. Oh my god! It's a, a tuxedo, yeah. with like a cape on it. Yeah, but then I also have I have a spear. Oh my god, that's yeah. fantastic! Yeah, and I sort of have like a Phantom of the Opera half mask yes, on. Yeah, I love the mask. It's just very nice, and I sort of I'm very theatrical about when I yeah. wear the outfit and I'm breaking up the strike. Yeah, I have a uh, I have a a stripe suit. Oh, with the sequins. Yeah, with sequins. Yeah, uh, eagle wings on the back, which I've always loved. And I swing a mace. Yeah, and I, and I wear a pig mask. Yeah. Well, I- yeah, I've been meaning to talk to you about yours. Is it too crazy? I don't I, think so. Okay, I just want to make sure. I just want to make sure. Uh, so, um, when he asked McGuire for the name of one of those wealthy individuals who were financially backing the plan... Mr. He, Johnson! He was told Grayson Murphy. Who was that? McGuire answered. He's the man who underwrote the formation of the American Legion for 125000 He underwrote it, paid for the fieldwork of organizing it, and had not gotten all of it back yet. Okay. It's an interesting phrase. Yeah. Had not gotten all of it back <laughs> yeah, yet. Yeah, that's a fun way to put it. I invested in this. What do I get? Yeah. <laughs> It'll come. I thought it was just a thing to help out the vets. The... Mm? Right. I thought it was just like a like right. for right. To, right, I misspoke. But what do you mean by get it back? You know, when am I going to get my fucking money back? What? I don't understand. You know what I mean? I want. I hope the vets do great. Right. I want them to do great. Right. And I want to do great when I, I get my goddamn money back. <laughs> <laughs> He's on our side. He wants to see the soldiers cared for. Smedley didn't commit one way or the other, but wanted to meet one of the financiers. Robert Sterling Clark came to visit. Clark was known as the Millionaire Lieutenant. He had a lot of money. He was the heir to the Singer Sewing Machine fortune. Oh, man, that's a fucking line for a bar right there. Girl. Girl, you know it. Let me buy you a drink on uh, the sewing machine. Clark said, <clears throat> you understand how we are fixed. I got $30 million. I do not want to lose it. I am willing to spend half of the $30 million to save the other half. If you go out and make this speech in Chicago... I am certain they will adopt the resolution, and that will be one step toward the return to gold, to have the soldiers stand up for it. We can get the soldiers to go out in great bodies to stand up for it. That's so... <laughs> so all the, rich is, people, is, all the rich people think that they're off the gold standards, they're all going to fucking lose their ass. Yeah, but then their plan is ridiculous. What are you talking about? The, what is, so the plan is... The plan is that Smedley, who we... Basically, we don't know if he's a good public speaker. He could be like a sitcom character and get real nervous when he publicly speaks. I have a feeling he's a good speaker. Okay, so and he says cunt a lot. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Through his radio addresses, we've learned that he's got cool. He's got he's got a sailor's mouth on him. <laughs> Shockingly, but so they're they're hiring him to just go there and make it seem like it's an organic, off the cuff sort of speech that he gives to 300 veterans who they've planted in the audience that will then start some sort of gold standard revolution because of this one speech? There was no YouTube. I mean, if you say it like that, it sounds dumb. It's not smart. (laughs) It's just not a good plan. I just feel like you're not describing it right. Uh, Describe it to me in the right way. No, that was right. Okay. Smedley told Clark he wanted no part of it. He believed in democracy. The convention was held, and the American Legion endorsed going back to the gold standard. Shocking. Smedley read about it in the paper and was amused. He didn't hear from anyone for many months, but then on the 22nd of August, 1934, 
Jerry Maguire returned. Jesus Christ. He'd just been on a fact-finding trip to Europe. He'd gone to study the role veterans play in the setup of Mussolini's fascist government. <laughs> Mussolini, who'd gone quite bad, who'd gone quite batty with meatball eye. <laughs> you see those, right? Uh, yes, Benito. Yes, of course we see them. Open your umbrellas. You're gonna get it covered. Uh, All I see is a meatball. Look, <laughs> <laughs> bring a spaghetti. <laughs> Make it make more sense. Jerry Maguire discovered that the veterans were the backbone to, to Mussolini's fascist government. He then went to Germany to observe what Hitler was doing and discovered the same thing. This guy went on quite the fact-finding mission. Well, he's just checking stuff out. Yeah, okay. You know, I hit the big two, Italy and Germany. See what they're doing. Fun stuff. Good stuff. McGuire arranged to meet Smedley in an empty hotel restaurant. There he dropped all the bullshit about getting vets bonuses and working for the soldiers. He said his financial backers aimed to assemble an army of a half a million disgruntled veterans born out of the seeds of the original bonus army. And he said the group would like Smedley to be the leader of this force. They would follow the plan of Mussolini. They would pay the vets well. We've got $300 million to start on the line, McGuire said, and we can get $300 million, Sorry, we've got $3 million to start, and we can get $300 million if we need it. Smedley said, what about the president? I'm for maintaining democracy. McGuire said, now, did it ever occur to you that the president is overworked? We might have an assistant president, like an AP. Yeah, we have an assistant president. No, no, like another one. Like a, like a, like like a, a third vice president? Not, like, not the vice president, like an, a, like an AP. An, like an assistant, assistant president. A, a, an assistant to the president. What? That's the vice president. No, it's the AP. No. Hear me out. I'm not. He went on to say that it did not take any constitutional changes to authorize another cabinet official, somebody to take over the details of the office, take them off the president's shoulders. He mentioned it it that does the, when it's the second guy. He mentioned that the position would be a secretary of general affairs, sort of like a super secretary. Well, that's the title you got to go with right there. Super sec. Da, 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 da. So this is a good plan. You just get another, like an AP super sec. Well, I like that, he, I like that he's dropped all the bullshit. He's like, look, you're right. It's about money. <laughs> now, can we talk? Let's talk about the super sec. Come on. You know, the American people will swallow that. We've got the newspapers. We'll start a campaign that the president's health is failing. Everybody can tell that by looking at him. And the American people will fall for it because they're dumb. He said <laughs> He's that. right on that. He then said they would pay a monthly wage to all those vets who are now suffering. Smedley showed some enthusiasm for the arrangement and invited, invited Jay McGuire to talk to his friend, Paul French. McGuire told French that all unemployed men would be put in military barracks under forced labor. Hmm? Sorry? I'm sorry. Fine print. What Here's, was that? It, it's just a simple plan. It, uh, if you don't have a job, right? So you got to go to uh, a forced labor uh, <laughs> camp. It's camp. Camp. A you just came back camp. from Germany. Yeah. So there's these camps where you put people who can't work and you put them in there and then you make them. Do sorry, stuff. you're calling these camps. Yeah. Right. Okay. Like uh, like BMW's BMW is using them, and uh, so we can do that with like Ford. Um. He also, sorry. You're calling right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these are work camps for work camps, out of for work unemployed. veterans. So they, they, if but they not can working, leave the camp. I mean, there's no reason they have work now. They'll be working. Hmm, that's interesting. For free. For sorry. Free. There's no. Yeah, it's for free. Mm -hmm. 
Just trust me. Okay. Sure. He also hinted that weapons would be furnished by the Remington Arms Company, in which the DuPont family owned a controlling interest. Mm, there's that delicious name. He continually discussed the need of a man on a white horse, as he called it, a dictator who had come galloping in. A man with eagle wings and a pig mask. And a red eyes. <laughs> he said that was the only way, though the threat of armed force and the use of a group of organized veterans to save the capitalistic system. In August, McGuire said it was all coming into place. You watch. In two or three weeks, you will see it come out in the paper. There'll be big fellas in it. This is to be the background of it. The papers will come out with it. He said that it would all be a society to maintain the Constitution and so forth. And in about two weeks, the American Liberty League appeared. Sasleta News, August 31st, 1934. The need for our adequate explanations home the need for adequate explanation struck home when the newly created American Li- Liberty League popped across the political skies. Allegedly nonpartisan, the league is manned by conservative Democrats and Republicans for the purpose of turning the spotlight on the economic activities of the federal government. They are cooperating with Republican leaders, probably in the interests of millions, who have invested in industrial enterprise whose earnings and security they feel endangered by a drift toward radical government policies. Regardless of their underlying motives, the new outfit will bid for public opinion with counter-propaganda to the federal publicity force, just like rival salesmen. The makeup of the league's executive committee was designed to demonstrate its bipartisan nature. It included John Davis, attorney for J.P. Morgan, Al Smith, former Democratic candidate for president, wealthy businessman Irene DuPont, two New York Republicans. The Wait, is that a man for, named Irene? Yeah. Or Irene, maybe. Okay. Yeah, I'm not Irene. Irene. Yeah, it's a terrible name. Uh, The state's former governor and representative James W. Wadsworth, the moving spirit behind the organization was John Jacob Roscob, a former chairman of the Democratic National Committee and former director of General Motors and a board member of DuPont. Also, Prescott Bush. So this is... Grandfather of George Bush. And this is their bipartisan... Yep. I think it's just rich, rich people. Yeah, well, it sounds exactly like what you would hear today. Yeah. Where they would just be like, here's the list of people who are going to figure out how to make the poor rich. <laughs> this group of elite rich people who hate the poor. <laughs> uh, full-time organizers established league chapters in 26 colleges and universities. Hundreds of pamphlets were printed and uh, written and printed and several million copies distributed. A speaker's bureau was established and the league sponsored many nationwide radio addresses, all echoing DuPont's demand that, quote, all government regulation of bus- business should be abolished. It really is just the exact, like, it that's just, well, that's just what you hear, like, it's all never, the time. It's yeah. like, we what, stop regulating them. Let business be business. Come on, let them pour all their shit yeah. in ponds. When has a corporation betrayed you? Let them police themselves. When have they ever done bad? They're good. They like people. Uh, they make money. Yeah. And then if you don't like them, you just don't pay for their stuffs. Yeah. Okay. From its 31-room office, manned by 50 people, press releases printed constant attacks on the New Deal, relief, Social Security, and the proposed 30-hour work week. Most of the newspaper articles... Uh, most of the newspapers around the country agreed printing releases are carrying favorable articles of the league's positions. So it's kind of exactly what Jerry Maguire said. Yeah. Then Smedler Butley called a press conference. A crowd of oh, journalists snap. surrounded him as he addressed the nation. Instead of saying he was going to take over the, as the fascist leader of the U.S., he told reporters the details of the secret pro-fascist, pro-fascist <laughs> plot. Oh, yes. And described their principal players. 
Butler's friend, Paul French. <laughs> McGuire was like, sorry, what's he saying? What is, is anyone here already saying up there? The guy's crazy. Move a little closer, because it sounds like he's saying some crazy fucking shit. Uh, Butler's friend, Paul French, had, turns out was actually an undercover reporter for the Philadelphia Record and New York Evening Post. The two men testified before the House Committee on Un-American Activities, disclosing all they had gathered from McGuire. Wow. Um, veterans of Foreign Wars National Commander James Van Zant also testified, stating that he had also been approached to be the dictator to lead the takeover of the United Jesus. States. McGuire and the wealthy men named all denied. McGuire and the wealthy men, all named, divide, denied involvement in anything. Uh, right? Shocking. Like, they didn't. That, that's not. Well, I, first I've heard of it. Come on now. I called, think things are going good. They they called the. Want uh, more money? Me? Why? Yeah, I don't like money. Uh, they called it a joke and a publicity stunt, and they. Uh, yeah, Smedley wanted just the publicity. He wants some he publicity. He loves the pub. You know. They even publicly questioned the sanity of Smedley, accusing him of being a drunk. But McGuire's testimony did not help. It was self contradictory. And it crippled his credibility. Ultimately, the House Investigative uh, Committee, Un-American Committee, concluded that there was compelling evidence of a plot. Yeah. On January 15, 1935, the committee submitted to the House of Representatives its final report verifying the testimony of General Smedley Butler. In the last few weeks of the committee's official life, it received evidence showing that certain persons had made an attempt to establish a fascist organization in this country. There is no question but that these attempts were discussed, were planned, and might have been placed in execution when and if the financial backers deemed it expedient. Expedient. This committee received evidence from Major General Smedley Butler. He testified before the committee as to conversations with one Gerald C. McGuire in which the latter is alleged to have suggested the formation of a fascist army under the leadership of General Butler. McGuire <clears throat> denied these allegations under oath, but your committee was able to verify all the pertinent statements made by General Butler, <laughs> with the exception of the direct statements suggesting the creation of the organization. However, this was corroborated in the correspondence of McGuire with his principal, Robert Sterling Clark of New York City. While McGuire was abroad studying the various forms of veterans organizations of fascist character. <laughs> so it's all true, according to the House yeah. committee, that these guys tried to set up a fascist, yeah, a fascist American. Yeah. Just the DuPonts and, and all the rich people. Just them, though. Nothing, yeah. No one else to worry. The Bush and DuPont and all the good families. Yeah. The press was quick to pick up the story, referring to the conspiracy as a, quote, plot without plotters which failed to emerge in any alarming proportion. A handful of papers took the story seriously, but most newsmen ridiculed the notion that their bosses, close acquaintances, would participate in a takeover of the country. Criminal charges were brought against no one, and the collection of prominent men implicated in the plot were immediately excused from testifying. In fact, all mention of their names was scrubbed from the committee's public report. One month after the final report was issued, Corsica... Corsicana Daily Sun, March 25th, 1935. Gerald McGuire, bond salesman for a New York brokerage house whose name was linked recently by General Smedley Butler with an alleged fascist plot to seize the U.S. government, died last night in a New Haven hospital at 37 years old. Jesus. Dr. Frank Toole, an attending physician, attributed the death of the bond salesman to pneumonia and other complications. Smedley Butler continued to fight for the veterans' bonus and FDR continued to fight against it. 
On January 27, 1936, the Senate overrode FDR's veto on paying the bonus. It was given in the form of bonds. The heads of veterans associations said they would push the vets to hold on to their bonds until 1945. Eighty percent of the bonds were redeemed that year. Yeah, I bet. Now, guys, <laughs> don't. If you don't have to, don't. And off they go. And they're all cashed. Uh, from a 1936 letter from William Dodd, the U.S. ambassador to Germany. Okay. To Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Okay. A clique of U.S. industrials is hell bent to bring a fascist state to supplant our democratic government and is working closely with the fascist regime in, regime in Germany and Italy. I have had plenty of opportunity in my post in Berlin to witness how close some of our American ruling families are to the Nazi regime. A prominent executive of one of the largest corporations told me point blank that he would be ready to take definite action to bring fascism to America if President Roosevelt continued his progressive policies. No action was taken. Smedley Butler wrote a book called War is a Racket. Quote, beautiful ideas were painted for our boys who were sent out to die. There was the war to end wars. This was the war to make the world safe for democracy. No one told them that dollars and cents were the real reason. No one mentioned to them as they marched away that their going and their dying would mean huge war profits. No one told these American soldiers that they might be shot down by bullets made by their own brothers in America. No one told them that the ships on which they were going to cross might be torpedoed by submarines built with United States patents. They were just told it was to be a glorious adventure. Thus, having stuffed patriotism down their throats, it was decided to make them help pay for war, too. So we gave them the large salary of $30 a month. All that they had to do for this sum was to leave their dear ones behind, give up their jobs, lie, lie in swampy trenches, eat canned willy, and kill, 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 and be killed. So he was not a big fan of war at that point. Do you have any canned willy? I, t- <laughs> I don't. I would just love a can of willy right now. <laughs> it's actual willy. That's why you should name your kid Will. Wait, what do you mean? They'll put anybody who's named Will. Oh, God. They put in cans and they send them to troops. So Will Anderson's living on a... a yeah. Like a, no, they're just like, there's a guy on the street who's like, so your name's Bill, but I mean... No, no, it's it Bill. No, on my yeah, bar, yeah, on my no, yeah, 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 but w- it's from it's a it's from William. Grab him, derived from William. Get him, throw him, him in the Willy van. Put him in a can. Put him in the Willy van can. This is good, Will. <laughs> Was this an Anderson? <laughs> June twenty sixth, nineteen forty. Major General Smedley. Oh, I'm not good today. Major okay. General Smedley Butler died in a naval hospital. Old Gimlet I succumbed to a gallbladder and liver ailment. At the time of his death, he was the most decorated U.S. Marine in history, and by the end of his career, Butler had received 16 medals, five for heroism. He is one of 19 men to receive the Medal of Honor twice. After the fall of the Soviet Union in 1994, two researchers went through an assortment of KGB dossiers. Oh, boy. There they found the codename Crook. Oh, boy. Crook was the name the Russians gave to their Soviet spy. Congressman Samuel Dixon, chairman of the House Special Committee on Un-American Activities. Oh, Jesus Christ. The Soviets eventually dropped him from the payroll in 1940 when he failed to win a seat on the new Un-American Activities Committee. Well, yeah, that's a big, that's a problem. That was looking into communism. Dixon, Dickstein then served as 
a New York judge until he died in 1954. Oh, God. Jesus. You always got to put a nice chair on the top, don't you? Oh, by the way, this guy, the world's biggest asshole. Anyway. How fucking great is that? The guy running the committee. Yeah. That's it's crazy. a fucking Soviet spy. Yeah. Well, what it is is it's also uh, like you just it, it's just a symptom of the world we live in that people want to take advantage of for their own profit and benefit whenever they can. It's just interesting to watch how it continually happens. And I think we live in the time now where it's been achieved. Oh, you completely. Know? Also, I'll be at the improv uh, Sunday night at 9.30. <laughs> Sunday night, 9.30 improv. But yeah, it's um, fucking crazy. But, and a lot of people still think this is not real, but with the House Committee's report and then the... The KGB the, thing is the, not real? Or no, the, the, the actual whole the, the fascist whole fascist movement. takeover. But the, with the, the report from the House Committee and the, the telegram from the ambassador is pretty fucking damning. Well, also, it's... You, like, you got to factor into there the amount of, like, you know, throw you off the scent yeah. tactics that are just going to be in anything like that because... And why wouldn't the rich want to take over the fucking country? Oh, Jesus I mean, Christ. Come on. Well, are you kidding? Like Prescott? Yeah, we're supposed to be on the side of Prescott Bush, who was like a Nazi. <laughs> yeah. No, but it is always. It's just this group of fucking elite jagoffs who yeah. are like Monsanto. It's just this group of They're fucking... Great. They're good. They're good people. Oh, sorry. That's right. I forgot they sponsored the show. Shout out to Monsanto. <laughs> Monsanto, guys. They got the seeds. Nothing will kill. Monsanto. Breaking the back of the regular farmer. Buy every week. Monsanto. Buy it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Bye. Oh, hey there, everybody. It's Gareth, you know, from this, uh, this podcast. Uh, listen, I've got some stand-up shows. I'm inviting the Garmy the Gareth Army, to join me for. I will be in Fort Collins, Colorado, August 18th and August 19th. I will be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, August 24th through August 26th at Acme. I will be going to the UK in September. Please join me. I will be in Glasgow, September 13th, London, September 15th, Dublin, September 17th, and September 19th, Manchester, Birmingham, September 20th, Bristol, September 22nd, and Cardiff, September 24th. And then in November, I'll be in Australia. November 10th, almost sold out, I think. I'll be in Melbourne, Australia. Then I will be in Northbridge, Australia on November 15th. Adelaide, November 16th. Canberra, November 17th. Brisbane, November 18th. And then I will be in uh, Sydney on November 24th. Go to GarethReynolds.com for tickets. Garmy, let's get at it after it let's see you there hey there people listening to the dollop uh this is gareth yes the same guy i listen i have a new podcast called we're here to help that i'm doing with my friend jake johnson it's basically a call and advice show where we don't say that we're professionals because we aren't but we try to help people with problems that are important to them you can listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts and it is out right now so go listen to we're here to help with Jake and Gareth. We're here to help with Gareth and Jake. I don't remember how we did it, but either way, fun. Half Hour comes out Tuesday, August 22nd, and the episodes will be out every Tuesday and Friday. We're here to help. 